This is Unbroken, healing through storytelling. Just to let you know, we have a vodcast on YouTube where you can watch the edited highlights of the episode. And don't forget to subscribe. If you fancy the full audio version, symbols, just keep listening. Oh, and if you've got a second, please give us five stars and a review. It really helps us stand out and get this important message to even more people that need to hear it the most. Meantime, enjoy today's episode. My guest today is Sia Twani. Meet the man who, like a giraffe, stuck his neck out for what he believed. Like Nelson Mandela, Sia was imprisoned for making a stand against injustice in South Africa. He is a resilience and mental toughness motivational speaker who speaks in schools and businesses across the country. Sia is a motivational speaker on a mission to empower, educate and enthuse people, especially children and young people with resilience skills. With over 30 years experience of speaking in the education sector, he is highly recommended by Ofsted and other authorities and can put his message across in an articulate manner that is accessible to all. The world is beautiful actually, is the people that mess it up with, with the actions and the behaviours and the words that can lead to broken hearted people. And so my father one day decided, son, I was about 10, I'm going to take you on a trip with me. You're going to help me deliver uh, papers on white people's flats and houses. I, I was excited. My father happened to miss one of the houses, a little white boy who was old enough to be my dad's grandchild, ran towards us and says, hey, you careful boy, you boy. And I, and I was thinking, did you just call my dad a boy? And we were handcuffed to an interrogation room in Caledon Square in Cape Town where we were tortured and brutalized and my rib was broken as a result. But they were brutal and they would laugh, ha ha ha, you terrorists, you think that you're gonna have um, the upper hand? This is the white man's country. These are black people saying it. These are black people. So welcome Sia to the show. Lovely to have you here. How are you doing today? Thank you, Madeline, for having me on the show. I'm looking forward to it. I'm doing really, really well. All the better for seeing you, and thank ah, you for the opportunity to interface so with your welcome. audience. You're so welcome. So because the show is called Unbroken, the very first question I ask everyone is, what does that word unbroken mean to you? It means uh, a, a different things. Um, we live in a broken world, uh, broken, fragile humans, uh, who have a potential to inflict pain on others. Uh, the world is beautiful, actually, is the people that mess it up with, with the actions and the behaviours and the words that can lead to broken-hearted people. I see myself not as a broken person. I see myself as a wounded healer because all of us uh, who are, inverted commas, broken are wounded healers. I use that word carefully because I refuse to accept that I'm a victim of apartheid. I am not a victim of apartheid. I'm a victor because victimhood is a choice. Yeah. Feeling sorry for oneself and what happened in the past is a choice. Yeah, people like, some people like to throw a self-pity party. Oh, feel sorry for me, still feel sorry for me. No, I made a choice not to be a victim. Yes, what happened to me, it did happen, but it doesn't define me. Does that answer your question? That absolutely answers my question in the most beautiful way. I love the term wounded healers, and it really 
resonates with me so much. So you gave us a little bit of a clue because you spoke about apartheid. So I know you're in London now, but you were born in South Africa and you were born into um, hardship, racism, inequality. What was life like for you when you were a young man? Uh, people always ask me, how long did I spend in prison? Physically, mm -hmm. I was in prison for four years, but my whole life was an imprisonment. Because by the mere fact that I was born black, it determined uh, where I would go to school, yeah. where shop I go to, which plane, which swimming pool, uh, which friends I would have. So um, South Africa, because of a party, was divided into colored, white, um, Asian, uh, and blacks. And black people were right at the bottom of the racist uh, uh, ladder or pyramid. So it was the Afrikaners, English. Japanese, et cetera, et cetera. So for a black person, we were right at the bottom. And, and it, was, it was made known that we are not just human beings. We're not humans at all. We're not humans at all. So for example, when my dad, my dad was a paper boy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so my father one day decided, son, I was about 10, I'm going to take you on a trip with me. You're going to help me deliver uh, papers on white people's flats and houses. Mm -hmm. I, I was excited. Wow. Um, I'm going to town with my dad. So I jumped on the train, excited. We went to a number of block of flats in Cape Town, delivering the newspaper through the letterboxes or underneath the paper, uh, underneath the door. My father happened to miss one of the houses, a little white boy who was old enough to be my dad's grandchild ran towards us and says, hey, you careful boy, you boy. And I and I was thinking, did he just call my dad a boy? So I floored him. I did a Mike Tyson, boom, uh, on the floor. I did a Jackie Chan on him. And my father was so angry with me. And he walloped me. He walloped me. Do you know, Madeline, why he did that? Would you get into trouble for beating this Absolutely. boy? Yeah. Yeah. He would have gone to prison for allowing me to defend his honor and his dignity. And so, kefir is a, a derogatory term, isn't it? It's like a nigger word. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like, hey, nigger boy. Yeah. And I just thought, wow. So my father punished me for punishing the white kid who called him a boy. Because in South Africa, if you're a black person, you were never a child, you would die a you're never an adult who die a child. So my mom was called a child girl. My father was called a boy or a garden boy. Yes. That so was my childhood. Even when you reach, you know, the grand age of 80, 90, you're still a garden boy or a child girl. Absolutely. You it's almost die. like to keep you in your place then really, isn't it? The language that's used. Yeah. Yeah. It's derogatory. It's to demean and dehumanize black people. Um, to say that you're, you're an eternal child. They even Afrikaners call black people pikininis, yeah, which comes from pygmies. You're a little person that does not exist. I define you and I tell you who you are. Mm -hmm. But they couldn't do that to you, Sia, because you decided to fight for equality. And this is what I believe. I don't know the story of why it led you to prison. You can tell us about that. Of course, of course. Um, at the age of 17, uh, prior to 17, it was 1976, there were riots in South Africa. The South African racist government mm -hmm. forced us to, to learn all the subjects in Afrikaans. 
And we refused because it was the language of the oppressor. Mm -hmm. And so in 1976, I was only 13. We went on, on a huge march protesting against being not just um, um, oppressed, but now we are told that everything must be done in the language of the oppressor, English, um, maths, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that was 1976. Fast forward, um, uh, four years later, I'm 17, and uh, I was uh, one of the student representative leaders, mm -hmm. uh, vocal about uh, the injustice in South Africa, especially in education or just in, in, in life generally. So I got arrested uh, with my two other comrades, my other two friends, and we were put at the back of a small called Galant car. Yeah, and we were handcuffed at the back of this car, which is illegal uh, because in South Africa, you're not even allowed to put a live chicken or a goat or in the back. But we were stuffed together in the back of this, uh, this little called Galant and we were handcuffed to an interrogation room in Caledon Square in Cape Town, where we were tortured and brutalized and my rib was broken as a result. Yeah, they were very vicious with you, really, weren't they? They were brutal. They were really brutal. The strange thing, because you can, we're going to talk about forgiveness, maybe I should hold fire because one of my torturers I met at the um, Desmond Tutu was officiating one of my friend's ordination, mm -hmm. and one of my torturers was, the, was, one, was one of the deacons in the church. This was after your imprisonment? This is after not as many years, maybe so, 10, 15 So years he after. flipped his life around completely then, didn't he? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I know you said you were in prison like Nelson Mandela. Was it the same prison or where were you held? Two things. They were, they were, first, you were taken to Caledon Square in Cape Town mm -hmm. where you were tortured. And then I was sent to Malmesbury where I was kept amongst the animals. It was part of the torturing system. Yeah, and they will stand a new pool, a new queue. And then I was sentenced um, to Robben Island. Okay. Yeah, but actually uh, in South Africa, you would be imprisoned without, uh, you'll be in detention without trial. You'll be put in prison without facing the judge. You are deemed a terrorist, therefore you sent you sent it to Robben Island or other prison prisons across the country. So they determine your guilt without a fair trial. Oh yeah. Yeah, and I oh, have yeah. um, visited the museum in Johannesburg, and I've seen the size of the cell that Nelson Mandela was kept in, and it was small. It was really small. Very small. Yeah, and you yeah. were there for. Four years, I believe. Yep, yep, I was. I was. Um, the prison cells, I mean, post Mandela's release, they tried to glorify Mandela's experience of having had a bed. When he was in Robin Island, there were no bed. He slept with his feast as his, as his pillow. Mm -hmm. It's only when he went to Paulsmore where he was allowed to have a bed. So when the people were showing uh, the international visitors, oh, look how wonderful Mr. Mandela lived. He was not like that at all. Yeah. He wasn't. It's a bit like the Nazis and the propaganda when they show people around the camps how they say, my father was a Holocaust survivor, so he's been persecuted for his religion, not for the colour of his skin, and many family members were murdered there. But, yeah, it's the same. Did you hear that? Yeah, it's, it's life. So, so. It's, it's life, just life. isn't it? It's just life. Yeah. Yeah. So you were yeah. talking about the beautiful world and the contrasting people in it at the very start. So how did you get released? What, what was 
Why did they decide well, that to let you out? They just they just decided, you know, they just decided you just go. Yeah. Uh, I was not allowed a doctor or minister or a priest or a rabbi or an imam. Uh, I, I had a broken rib because they kicked the hell out of me. Uh, so they decided, well, now you learn your lesson, you terrorists. Yeah. Um, go, go, go out and behave yourself, which was not the case, which was not the case. I didn't want to behave because my parents um, internalized oppression that the white man is like God. And so whatever the white man says, they bow down to. So I ended up... But that was fear, though, really, wasn't it? I mean, you can understand as well, you know, it's their conditioning and, and they'd had that maybe for longer than you had at your young age. Exactly, exactly. It was fear. The apartheid regime ruled by fear and intimidation. Yeah. And it worked on them, but you saw that you didn't want to become your parents. No, 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 no. I didn't want to be a yes boss. In Africa, they say yes boss, it means yes boss, yes boss. I didn't want to be a yes boss, a young black person. I defied the apartheid regime. And what did you do when you came out of prison? I mean, how? Well, what was your mood like? How How were you feeling? I know later on we le- we will discuss your forgiveness, but were you not angry when you first came out? Did you, were you not I full of rage? I white man. Yeah. I was full of rage. Um, resentment is little. I was full of rage. And so I took up an AK-47 mm-hmm. um, to obliterate the white person. Actually, let me just correct that, because people have got a misconception that Mr. Mandela was hateful towards white people, or Robert Sobukwe, or Steve Biko, those three great leaders went. They were saying, please, let us be, let's negotiate a peaceful settlement. Let's, let's, treat me as a fellow human being. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so um, later on, Mandela went to pick up arms and he went to Libya and he was trained in Libya. He came back and he started Umkonto with Caesar which was the military wing of the ANC. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was not in his heart to kill people. It was not in my heart. I am an empath. Yeah. I am an empath. It's not in my heart to hurt a fly. You won't believe that. Mm-hmm. Now then how can you then go and, and, and carry an AK-47? It's because when you, it's like when you have a, a sister or a sibling or a friend who's a bully. And you say this gently, it, please don't stand on my toe, it hurts. Don't stand on my toe, it hurts. Then there comes a point where you physically push them. Yeah. For them to get the message that it really does hurt. Stop it. So that was the, that, that was the only way that uh, I would, uh, that was the only way I would kind of like push them to the point of saying, listen, it really hurts. The, the racial trauma that you put us through for centuries and the one that I personally experienced, it really hurts. Yeah. So I pick up an AK-47. Yeah, because it's not just your trauma, isn't it? It's generational trauma. Your parents, your grandparents, their parents. It's just, it's just in our genes, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And so you'll find sometimes people minimizing the racial trauma of people have experienced racial trauma. Oh, see, I'm sick and tired of hearing about apartheid. I'm sick and tired about colonization. It was not my bag. I was not responsible. All I'm asking for people is not to jump to conclusion, mm-hmm. is to show empathy and understanding and jump into the person. Like I hear your powerful story. The first time I heard it, I cried. Mm-hmm. I thought, how dare you do that to this beautiful soul? Yeah. 
So I'm asking people to have to show empathy and understanding and but, be able to walk into other people's moccasins. How did you get to that place? Because you just told us you took up arms and, and you were full of rage. So what was that journey like to walk towards empathy, understanding, forgiveness? How, how did that all happen with you, Sia? Forgiveness is not about letting the other person off the hook. It's letting me off the hook. It's letting me off the hook. Because just like Nelson Mandela said, if he did not learn to forgive, if he, uh, when he was in prison, mm -hmm. he would have still be a prisoner of his bitterness and of his anger and of his hatefulness towards the people who put, me, put him in prison. Um, but for my, my journey started when I realized that the white people oppressed me, they were actually the victims of apartheid as well. The people who tortured me, they were actually victims of apartheid because they were brainwashed to dehumanize me, to see me less than. I'm actually more than, I'm enough. And the people that were torturing you were black or they were white? There were white and black people because the system used black people as police officers, as informers. And for example, uh, I alluded to it earlier on, Desmond Tutu was celebrating the Eucharist of one of my friends' uh, ordination. And I said to my wife, then I says, look who's behind Desmond, I says who? I says, it's a man who tortured me as a black guy. He tortured me in prison. Actually, the black, uh, the black uh, security branches were brutal mm -hmm. than the uh, the Africaners, and the Africans were worse. But they were brutal, and they would laugh. Ha ha ha! You terrorists! You think that you're gonna have um, the upper hand? This is the white man's country. These are black people saying it. These are black people saying it. But so, you got to uh, a point where you could look beyond that and see that they were just victims of their society, Absolutely. their conditioning, their corruption almost by their life. Absolutely. I got to the point of saying, see, if I hold grudges and bitterness, it's like uh, handsome. It's like waiting. It's like Mandela says it so well. Forgiveness. Some people think that um, forgiveness is like, or resentment, is like giving somebody the poison to drink and expect that person to die. Actually, it's me who's dying. Yeah. So it was it was on that Sunday um, when I saw this guy. It was a few years after I was released from prison. I actually literally went to Caledon Square to offer forgiveness to the white Mr. Speaker Frank Vake, Kutsia, and Van der Horven. Yeah, they were Afrikaner guys, they were brutal. Mm -hmm. I offered Mr. Swartz, who was the, um, the chief of the interrogation officers. And he spoke closer, actually, fluently. So the others didn't want to know, hey, what, 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 what are you talking about? Mr. Swartz, who spoke my language fluently, took off his glasses and he cried. And I thought, I've done my job because I'm liberating myself. Mm -hmm. And then he went on from there, from strength to strength, because forgiveness is not letting the other person off the hook. <laughs> and it's also oh. about... You are in touch with your your humanity, and when you offered him your forgiveness, you touched his humanity and him. And you could both kind of lay down your weapons, your weapons, your words, your actions. So what what a powerful moment for both of you. Uh, absolutely. I'm now on a mission to heal human disconnections. Mm -hmm. That's my mission, yeah? Yeah, I think it was Kofi Annan who says, through love, 
Yeah, not through AK-47, not through hatred, not through the BNP philosophy, through love and understanding. We can make this world a better place to live in. That's why I go into schools. That's why I go into business to talk about diversity and inclusion. Seek first to understand than to be understood. Yeah, because we're not born with hate in our heart, really, are we? I think we are a product of love. That's how we come into this world. But we learn to hate by, you know, watching people or our experiences. Absolutely. Nelson Mandela puts it so well. He says, just as somebody is taught to hate, so people can be taught to love. Totally. So it's not in our DNA to, to be full of hate and resentment and bitterness. We are beautiful human beings. Mm -hmm. We are. We've got a potential for good. And therefore, we need to enhance, uh, harness uh, that goodness in other people. And, and me, for example, me not see the other person as a potential danger. In my language, the word Salborn, I think you've been to Joburg. Yes, Salborn. The word to, you've been, Salborn means I see you. I acknowledge you. You're one of us. Yeah. So there's no stranger danger. It's only when I came to live in England. Oh, uh, that's a stranger. Oh, really? Because in South Africa, how are you? So I embrace you. We won together. Yeah. And you, ha you have an interesting story how you came to England, really, don't you? I was yes, reading I about do. your story <laughs> after you were imprisoned. You, you had the opportunity to travel out of South Africa and you were, I did. You were on a ship. Which... I was in a boat, yeah, I was yeah. in a boat uh, that was, again, spreading the message of love and understanding and forgiveness and human connection. And then the boat, we were sailing through the Beagle Channel uh, in Latin America, and the boat hit the submerged rock and, hit, uh, and sank. And then I ended up being sent to the United Kingdom. And that's yeah. where you've, you've stayed ever since, which is where you met your wife, I believe, as well. I, oh, you have done some research, girl. Of course yes. I do. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I met my wife. It's right, my, yeah. Uh, that's when I met my wife. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and when I asked you to send me some information, you sent me fabulous professional photos of you, and you sent me a photo with you and Nelson Mandela. What is happening in that photo? Because I couldn't quite work out what it was about. One of the things that Nelson Mandela did, because during the apartheid era, the government shut down all the terrorist uh, organizations, ANC, PAC, ASAPO, et cetera, et cetera. Then it left a leadership gap. So the church became a prophetic voice of speaking against injustice because justice is, is God's agenda. Equality is God's agenda and shared humanity is God's agenda. So Mandela invited clergymen. He actually toured South Africa and, and invited all the faiths because it was not just the church. He was the Muslim, the Baha'i. He was a Hare Krishna. He was atheist. He was humanist. He was every human being. But he invited clergy people in different parts of South Africa. And this was in Cape Town, in Mitchell's Plain, a colored township. Mm -hmm. He says, guys, I just want to show my appreciation. And I say, thank you for your prayers. Thank you for standing in the gap. And thank you for always having me at the forefront of, of, of your prayers and your love and support. And I actually had the privilege, I had the privilege of saying, Dada, can I pray for you uh, in person? So I held his hand. And I started crying. Oh, well, that's making me cry just listening to you. <laughs> it must have been such a <laughs> such a, a beautiful and, yeah, powerful moment. Was this the only time you had met him or had you met him many times? 
I've met him. I've met. I've met, I met him uh, three times prior to that uh, in Cape Town. But this was very special because Mandela is a Methodist, but also the drive for for justice came from the sense of what we were given um, that God is God is love, and Mandela was wanting to acknowledge that I have achieved my mission of spreading love. Because they wanted, they painted him as this terrorist. Even Mrs. Thatcher said, Mandela is a terrorist. He should be hanged. But when Mandela came out, he shook hands with him. He said, this is a champion of peace. And he was. And I felt privileged to hold his hands and and share the love that he so profoundly expressed. So we missed the part where you became part of the clergy. When did that happen? (laughs) <laughs> I was raised by um, a bishop mm-hmm. uh, myself, but I had conflict uh, conflict with with uh, the church and the Bible because what the apartheid government did, it made us subservient to the government. Mm-hmm. It made us just uh, uh, have blind obedience. For example, I told you about my parents who look at white people as gods yeah. and... Um, my father, as a clergyman, was part of a church that was apolitical. You don't challenge the status quo. You don't challenge the status quo. So, for example, in our home, uh, in my home, there were pictures of Jesus as a white person. So I asked the questions: Why is Jesus blue? You know, <laughs> blue, blue eye, blonde. Uh, why is Satan the man with the with the fork? Mm-hmm. Uh, my father, stop asking too many questions. Just accept it. I said, no, Dad, I'm not going to accept that. So I then later on went to a theological seminary or um, theological college to train as a clergyman because I always had a sense of, of being called by God to spread his love and to, to promote equality and justice. So I went, uh, my theological training did not start at college or university. It started when I was asking big questions in the township. If God is fair, why does he allow the minority to oppress the majority? And did why you come up with an answer? <laughs> did you come up with any well, answers? Well, why does he allow it? <laughs> well, that's the mystery I'm living with. Yeah, because that still happens today. You look at capitalism and socialism. Anyway, so when I was the, uh, did I come up with an answer? It's still the mystery of my faith. So I uh, I started asking these big questions about, I never ex- questioned that God exists. I questioned his justice. God, are you just? Why do I allow my father to be a garden boy, my mom to be a garden boy? Why do I allow my father to leave at half past three in the morning to take a train, to go to work, come back in the evening? We never see him, but he was forever present for white people to to do their their, their errands and their chores. So the question of God's justice for me was big. And so I went to college, went to university, and, uh, um, and, and then I got ordained as a minister and I started preaching, um, as I always have done, the love of God and the peace of God and the justice of God, and that hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. But you're no longer in the clergy now, though, are you, in England, in the church? No, I'm no. no, I'm no longer. Well, uh, John Wesley says, the church, the world is my parish. I think clergymen need to move away from church with within the four confinements of the world. They are interface now with families, with young people in schools, outside schools, people who would not normally come to church because the church is stifling, the church is irrelevant. 
Yeah. One of the things that but I love... I, think, I still preach, yeah. You do, yes. Don't stop. One of the things that I, I loved, which I think I took from your website, was your motto, that you want to be a better person, not bitter. And I just love that. And as you said in the beginning, you're not a victim of apartheid, but a victor. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What, what can we do about the racism, the anti-Semitism, everything? that It still, still goes on. It feels like we haven't learned from apartheid. We haven't learned from the Holocaust. You know, history is just repeating itself. There's currently a war going on in Ukraine, Russia. How, how will we ever learn to be equals and respect each other, have equality? How can I answer that in, in, in a weird story? My, uh, this is a story told by so many people. A person was walking along the seashore and saw these turtles, baby turtles, thousands of them just washed along this, the sea coast. And a man watched this person who took the time to take them one by one, says, hey, you silly person, why are you doing that? There's millions of them. And this person re- responded to the person observed. He says, sir, I'm making a difference. One by one. I may not save all the million, but I'm doing, I'm chucking that one back into the ocean and it's going to live. And I think it starts with me. It starts with you. Yeah. It starts with compassion. It, it starts with understanding. It starts with, I have a, something I called the ladder of prejudice. It starts with the way I perceive people, think about people, the words that I say, my attitude. It starts with me. It starts with me seeking to understand than to be understood. It, it's about having those difficult, uncomfortable conversations about race, religion, about humanity. And, and actually, we move away from the things that separate us and focus on the things that causes me and you to connect as humans, which we have today. And absolutely, it's a shame that people don't realize that we are more alike than we are different, really, aren't we? Absolutely, absolutely. So much. Uh, and actually, absolutely. I was I spoke on Friday at a, a live event, which was very exciting. The first time in a long time to about 300 I people. Saw, I saw, I was so excited for you. <laughs> it was I very said, exciting. Yeah, <laughs> but one well, of the, the, the first woman who spoke, Natalie Sharon, spoke about her, um, what she receives being a gay woman. You know, she walks into a female toilet and they say, you know, this is the woman because she has short hair. They assume she's a man, but she's not. And she says, it's just, it starts with all these little micro changes that we can make. The micro changes become the big changes. If somebody says, you know, actually I am female and I've got every right to use this, or someone stands up for this person, these little micro changes just ripple and ripple and ripple. If we all just did a tiny little bit, like you said, it does make a huge difference. It makes a world of difference. Just on that, and now we're nearly running out of time. My my daughter is a lesbian. Mm-hmm. My son is transgender. Mm-hmm. I fell out with one of my very, very good friends, clergyman, who said to me, Sia, you are allowing your children to be gay and lesbian. You're going to burn in hell with them. And I thought, wow, where is the love of God in this? Because Martin Luther King put it so well, I have a dream that my children will grow up in a world where they're not judged by the color of the skin, but by the content of their character. Why should they be judged whether they be gay, tall, short, African bottom or not African bottom? Why should they be judged? Why they should be judged that they've got short hair, uh, uh, they've got beard or no beard? Why? Why should they be? 
yeah, I have a transgender niece and a transgender nephew. And I said, well, you're just the same on the inside to me. You know, whatever, however you want to present on the outside is your business, but you're just the same to me. I'm still your auntie and I still love you. Makes no difference. Beautiful. But, yeah. but I can understand Beautiful. how it would be tricky for people, but it's, we need to get, educate ourselves really. You know, this is now how it is. <laughs> if we have the issue, it's not their problem if, if we have an issue with them. So it starts yes. with us. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, uh, Mandela, I've finished off with Mandela, says education is the most powerful weapon with which we can change the world. Yeah. Uh, I wish that I was a child and you were coming to my school to speak. I think you would just leave people so motivated. It's been such a joy to speak to you, Sia. Just before we round up, is there anything like last minute advice or anything that you haven't said that you would like to leave our listeners with? Just, just, just to say this, I repeat, I'm not a victim of apartheid. I'm not in a business to be bitter or to make this world a, a bitter place. I'm a, in a business of being a better person. So my, not an advice necessary, just my thoughts as we finish. Uh, whatever you, I have a philosophy that governs my life. And it, it follows, face it, embrace it. Mm-hmm. defy it and conquer it no. whatever brings whatever life throws your way face it don't run away from it yeah uh embrace it it's part of your human experience and defy it i'm not defined by what happened to me i am defined by what i'm becoming and conquer it have that spirit of, of resilience yeah you know sometimes life knocks you around but you can bounce back Yes. Actually, you taught me something. No, he says you bounce forward. Yes, you've definitely way bounced forward. It's not really, I believe, it's not what knocks us down. It's how we stand back up. That's what really Absolutely. matters. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So it just leaves me to thank you so much for coming on the show. I've so enjoyed this conversation and I know my listeners will too. So thank you, Sia. Thank you, Madeline. Thank you for the privilege. Unbroken healing through storytelling. If you haven't already, go on, download, subscribe, give us a five-star rating. It really helps us get this important and life-changing message out to as many people as possible. There is already a selection of fantastic episodes to choose from and a brand new one coming soon. Unbroken healing through storytelling. Playing now on all the main platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher for Android, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and here. Play Unbroken, the podcast with Madeline Black.